studying the book of Daniel, and we're on Daniel chapter 3 tonight. So why don't you turn to the book of Daniel chapter 3, and I'm going to invite Ruth and Alex to come and read to us uh, this text. Thank you. There's a microphone there. Thank you. Tonight's reading is taken from Daniel chapter 3, and that's page 886 on the Pew Bibles. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods and worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up.
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire did not harm their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. The robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Thank you, Ruth, and thank you, Alex for reading to us. Well, compression molding is one of the most common shaping processes used in manufacturing. You never thought I'd start a sermon with that, did you? Hey, neither did I. Everything from car bumpers to wellies are made by this process. And a manufacturer, knowing exactly what they want to produce, takes, say, a sheet of plastic and seeks to transform it into exactly what they want to make. But here's what's needed to shape the material. Heat and pressure. If there's no heat, the material won't bend. If there's no pressure, the material won't be forced into the desired shape. And if it doesn't conform then on the production line to the manufacturer's design, it's rejected, discarded, maybe melted down even. Well, compression molding, it seems, is not only utilized for shaping plastics, but in a wider sense, a tactic for shaping cultures. Figuratively speaking, of course, compression molding uh, from the uniformity of North Korea, even to the liberal societies of the West, often what we see is heat and pressure applied in all sorts of ways in order to try and produce a certain shape, not of something to sell, but a citizen of that place. Now, for Christians, this creates a particular problem because when we see that our world wants to squeeze us into their mold, 
Because Romans 12 tells us quite clearly, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're meant to be different. There are a whole host of texts in the scriptures which tell us that we are supposed to be a people who do not conform, but a people who are distinct. But what happens when we don't conform? Well, we've been thinking about this to some degree in 1 Peter. And again, we'll see it come up again and again in the book of Daniel as well. When we don't conform to society's values, we are likely to experience marginalization or rejection. And in more intense situations, certainly this is true for many brothers and sisters across the world, persecution. What should we do? How are we supposed to respond? Well, I think Daniel 3 really serves us well in this. Because it helps us answer these questions. Because we trust, as is at the very heart of this text we're looking at tonight, that God is able to deliver us in the midst of the heat and the pressure. But even if he does not, we will resolve that we will not serve the gods of our culture or of this world. Two points tonight. Here is the first one. In verses 1 to 18, we have mapped out for us this pressure to conform. Let me talk to you about the pressure cooker of cultural conformity. As we see in verses 1 to 7, it normally starts with pressure from those in authority. Because those in authority have the power to shape things like Nebuchadnezzar at this time, who ruled the known world. Now, if you were here last week, you would think that Nebuchadnezzar's nightmare in chapter 2 would cause him to scrap plans for building a dazzling statue memorial thing to himself, but he doesn't. Verse 1 tells us quite plainly, Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. As tall probably as this very building that we're in just now, and he sets it out on a flat land, in other words, to maximize its visibility. It's in defiance of the God of heaven who revealed, who was revealed to him by Daniel last week. And Nebuchadnezzar insists on setting up this image. And now he's demanding, actually, that the whole world bows down. All nations, all people, bow down before this. When the herald, as verse 4 says, loudly proclaim, nations and peoples of every language, you must fall down and worship the image of God Nebuchadnezzar has set up. See the pressure? starting to be applied. And verse 2 tells us that he calls the leaders and officials from the conquered lands under Nebuchadnezzar's rule to come for the dedication service. Well done, Ruth, for picking up on this sack traps and the magistrates and all those people. In other words, it's meant to be all of the officials, all the rulers that are coming for this dedication service. And they're all there. They're all taking selfies with the governor of Denmark and all sorts of things like that. They're, they're having a great time. But it's not so much really a trooping of the color kind of celebration, but a North Korean military parade. Those in attendance are basically told what to do. When the music plays, bow down. And sure enough, when the orchestra piped up, they bowed down. In fact, the original, in the original language, in the word order of verse 7 says, as soon as they were hearing, they were falling. Nations and peoples fell down. So there was no, will I, won't I. As soon as they were hearing, they were falling. Why? Well, probably because, verse 6, they feared the furnace and feared the one who would throw them into it. 
Nebuchadnezzar had effectively warned, toast me or I toast you. It was effectively conformity or cremation. That was the choice. Now, I want to say that the same pressures can be experienced by Christians like us. The same pressures turn up the heat on Christians like us living in this world as we do, as you, if you like, on temporary visas. This is not our home. We are citizens of another place. But still, we're expected to conform to the culture around us. We're expected to bow under the pressure of the authorities to worship all sorts of images, things that our culture and our government sets up as values and things to be bowed down to, like this idol of tolerance, where we hear things like, well, you can worship your God as long as you don't say your God is the only God. And as long as you acknowledge the validity of our gods at the same time, well, you can be a part of us. Or we're expected to bow under the pressure even at a local level, an individual level with our peers, to worship the idols of money, sex, and power. Really, our friends ask in disbelief, you won't have sex with your boyfriend until you're married? The weight of cultural pressure on us at an individual level and at a national level is, is strong. If we could measure it in pounds per square inch at times, we'd feel like we're about to pop. We don't like the heat that comes when we don't conform to societal expectations and we feel the temptation to downplay what our culture is asking us to do or downplay what is required of us by God. Well, I'm not being asked to deny God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm going to have to come up with short. Shad, Mesh, and Ab. Okay, these are the guys that we're talking about tonight. These three. Um, they might be tempted to say, well, actually, I'm not technically being asked to deny my God. I'm just saying that I need to worship this image as well. They could have started to, to do some backflips theologically to try and excuse themselves. Maybe it won't do any harm. Well, it's not that I can't worship God in private. It's just that I should be expressing this particular view in public. We experience this in different ways. I've spoken to many people who've experienced this kind of pressure. I think of a girl called Julia um, in my former church up in St. Andrews who became a Christian uh, after a missions week. Uh, at one of the CUs, and she started coming along to our church. And, and then there was a few weeks where we, I would walk out of the service, and, and she would be at the door, like not, not even in the threshold of the church, but as close as she could be. And I said, what are you doing? She said, uh, she was from, she was from uh, Canada, and she said, well, my, my parents are very, very strong atheists. And they've said to me that if they hear that I've even crossed the threshold of a church that they'll pull my funding and I'll not get to finish my degree. So she was actually standing right on the threshold of the church to try and listen to God's word preached. Or we think about international students. Many people come from different lands where there are different societal views, different values that families and nations and governments hold to. They come and they study for a while. Some, praise God, through things like IF and International Cafe and so on, come to know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves. And that flips their whole world upside down. Praise God for that. But then they go back to their own countries. And maybe they're in somewhere in the Far East where worshipping ancestors is a big deal. And maybe it comes to that annual visit to the temple to, to, 
to burn some incense or make some sacrifice to another god for the benefit of ancestors who have already passed away. What does that international student do when the temptation is there to say, well, they're not asking me to deny my God. Will it really do any harm? It can be a tough thing when the pressure is applied and the heat is turned up and the threat of the furnace of rejection or whatever else. In some countries it's worse. What do we do? Daniel 3 encourages us to stand. Stand firm on your faith. Because not everyone fell down and worshipped that day. And here's where we see the resolve of a counter-cultural, let's say, Christianity. Verses 8 to 12 shows that Shadmesh and Ab refused to bow down to cultural pressure. Then the king found out, and he is absolutely fuming. In verses 13 to 15, he calls the three friends in and threatens them with the furnace. He will not tolerate the rebellion. See what he's doing? He's applying more pressure. He's turning up the heat even more. So he says, you've got one more chance to bow to me because without me, you've got no chance. Verse 15c, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And Nebuchadnezzar says, what a foolish thing to say. In other words, this is what he's saying. Nonconformity will be the end of you and your religion. That's what our culture would actually like us to believe. That's certainly what secular humanists would like us to believe. But it's just not true. These guys show us that the strength of our resolve to be countercultural is not rooted, though, in mere courage. It's not just, I really hope you can have the same kind of courage as these three guys or as Daniel in the lion's den. No, that's not what it's about. These guys show us that the strength of our resolve to be countercultural is not rooted in something as simple as bravery or courage, but it's rooted in truth informed trust. Truth informed trust. Our ability to stand, you see, is sourced in knowing and trusting with all of our heart, which means even not leaning on our own understanding, trusting the one true king. So what truths reinforce our trust? Well, how about the knowledge of our God as the mighty Savior? There's a good start. That's what helped these guys. God is able to save us. Verse 17. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. Now make no mistake, these three guys know that Nebuchadnezzar is a mighty king. Yet they trust that there is a hand that is mightier still. They know that the ruler of the Babylonian empire has the power to throw them into a bacon hot oven. But they trust that the ruler of the whole universe has the power to deliver them from it. And they trust, even here, that on this occasion, he will. It's an incredible thing to say. An incredible response. But it gets even better. Because in verse 18, they go on to say, But, even if he does not. Now, don't misunderstand these guys. That's not an expression of doubt in God's ability to save. No, it's an expression of trust in God who works out everything in conformity to his sovereign will. So on the one hand, we have them express their strong belief that God is able to save them and that God will save them. 
But on the other hand, they allow for the possibility that he might not, because it might be better for them to die. In other words, they're saying God will save us. But even if he does not, he is still the one true king. He is still God. What that, what that must have said to Nebuchadnezzar, it's as if they say, we don't defy you because we think we're going to live through this ordeal. We defy you because our God is the one true king and we will obey and worship and love and serve him and him alone. No one else. No one else. No matter what the cost. That's what they say in verse 18. We want you to know your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We're not going to conform to your commands or be forced to conform because of your threats. We'd rather die than deny God. That is quite a thing to say. It reminds me of Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They've been going around telling everybody that Jesus Christ is Lord and King of all the universe and that the people who are listening to them should repent of their sins They should be really sorry for the fact that they're the ones who crucified him and they should believe the good news because Christ is the Messiah. Well, the authorities are not happy. They take them in, they give them a good talking to and a few other things and then they pull them before the magistrates, etc. And they they say, okay, here's the deal. We're going to let you go. But on this condition, you've not to talk about the name of Jesus ever again. What would you have done? What would you have said? Fat chance. Fat chance. <laughs> well, that's not quite what they said. Maybe in the message translation. But uh, in, the, in, the, in this particular translation of the Bible, they say, judge for yourselves whether it is better for us to obey God or you. So how should Julia respond? Remember my friend from St. Andrews? Mom, Dad, I love you. I have no desire to be disobedient to you. In fact, to honor you. But you're asking me to do something I cannot do. If you won't support me, then I believe God might just provide a way. But even if he doesn't, I'll come home and I'll get a job at McDonald's. I'll do something else. I will not defy my Savior God. I just can't. And even if it costs me my relationship with you, I'm asking you not to put this pressure on. But he is my king and my Lord, and I will love and serve him only. Friends, we need to be willing to trust in God as our Savior God and resolve to be faithful to him no matter what He's called us to be and say, I'm going to trust that he's able to save me. And even if he doesn't, even if I lose my influence, even if I lose friends, even if I lose my reputation, maybe it's smeared, even if I lose my job, I will not be unfaithful to the God who has saved me. In all of this, when the heat is turned up and the pressure is applied, Tim Keller says, faith is what fireproofs you for the furnace. Trust trust God it's by no means easy we can make it we can find it really hard to make that kind of resolution but let let the second thing that I want to say tonight strengthen your resolve 
This is the second point. The strength to stand firm. The faith to stand firm. The fact of the matter is that God is the one who does deliver us through our trials. Nebuchadnezzar here in this story is absolutely furious at the defiance of these men. He decides to show them who's boss. He orders three things to happen. But this is hilarious. Everything Nebuchadnezzar orders to demonstrate the might of his hand. He's flexing his muscles here. But it all serves to prove the might of God's hand. Verse 19, he ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter. In other words, as hot as possible. But in verse 26, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego come out the fire. Verse 20, he assigns the strongest of soldiers in his army to throw these men into the furnace. But verse 21 tells us that the strong men were the ones who died even outside the fire. I I chuckled. When I saw the fact that in the text it says that in the end it looked like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego actually just fell into the fire. They survived though, didn't they? In the hottest part. Verse 21, the men were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. Verse 23 adds that they were firmly tied. In other words, they were bound with ropes. Yet what do we see? In the whole scene, what's the only thing that gets burned up? The ropes. The sign of Nebuchadnezzar's might, burned up by his own furnace. Verse 25 tells us the men were walking around unbound, unharmed. So Nebuchadnezzar's actions then, as he sought to turn up the heat and the intensity of the situation, only goes to prove the might of God's power. And then the witnesses come along and prove that God is able to save as well. When they come out, everybody, so, so when the three guys come out, everybody gathers around to examine them. Now, these are some of the same people that have been thrown accusations. Certainly, it's the same people that have been bowing down to this image. Verse 27 uh, explains to us what they saw. And I wonder what you would expect to see with someone coming out of a, a furnace like this. Think about their skin you'd expect to see full thickness burns. You wouldn't really expect to see much left. But medics, or maybe, maybe the medics are, of Nebuchadnezzar are running up looking to apply some cling film, but these guys didn't even have a blister. Verse 27, the fire had not harmed their bodies. You'd expect to see their hair singed at least. But they come out looking like they've just been to the barbers. Not one hair on their heads was singed. Or think about their clothes. You'd expect to see them burnt off. Yet they look like they've just had a makeover. Their robes were not scorched. Now you would at least expect them to come out stinking of smoke, right? You, you know, everyone, I'm sure, most people here, I would say, have camped around a campfire. Or at least you've burnt your toast, let's face it. And, and you know what it's like when you get home from the camp. and you, What's the first thing that you smell whenever you open your bag? Smoke. Smoke from the fire, yet there was no smell of fire on them. It's incredible. You see the extent of God's protection on these three men on this occasion. A wonderful testimony of his power to save. Untouched, unharmed, unbound. God is maintaining his faithfulness here, friends, to a promise that he had given through Isaiah a hundred years before this. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Friend, God is still 
our Savior today. God is still the one who delivers us, his saints, through and from trial. Many balk at that. Oh, can God provide such miraculous protection in the face even of severe persecution like we have exemplified in here in Daniel 3? Well, who would want to limit God by saying he can't? For nothing is impossible with God. In fact, Hebrews 11 includes a whole list of people who have experienced God's deliverance firsthand. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith, trust, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions and quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. God has proven again and again throughout history, not just in biblical times, but in the church age, that he is still in the business of delivering us. But I wonder if we have the strength of faith and trust demonstrated by these men, that even in the pressures and difficulties that we experience when the heat is turned up, if the cancer ends in death or pain stays with us until we die, will we still say our God is able to save us? But even if he does not, the truth of the matter for us is this. God will deliver us From death or through death. And that's what the remainder of the Hebrews 11 passage says. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sodden too, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. You see, friends, this text is not promising us that God will always deliver us from our trials. He will deliver us through them. And he will be exalted and praised in any respect, whether that event ends in our, if you like, physical preservation or whether it's through death we enter into our eternal state. Faithful ones who did not conform to the pressures of godless society are mapped out for us. And the heroes of the faith passage in Hebrews 11, half of them were delivered miraculously and wonderfully. Half of them died terribly. Yet all resolved to trust the one true king. How is it that we can face trial though with such trust? Well, they know that God is with us in our trials. This again is true for these guys in Daniel 3. We see in verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet. This is when they're in the furnace and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. <laughs> son of the gods? What on earth is Nebuchadnezzar seeing? What's he seeing in the fire? 
Evidently, he's seeing someone who could only be described in divine terms. And somehow, it's clear that the reason the three men are walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed is because of the fourth man there. Who, by the way, if you notice at the end, doesn't come out with the other three. Who was it? Well, it was either an angel, a messenger of God, sent to do his bidding, or, as many would believe, God himself making his presence known. It's not the first time he's done this in this way. In the Old Testament, there's this mysterious figure called the angel of the Lord. But he's not just an angel in the, in the way that other angels are in the scriptures. When he appears and when he speaks, uh, for example, like with uh, Moses at the burning bush, his words are the very words of God, spoken even in the first person. So when he speaks, you don't hear the relaying of a message, like something's being passed on. You hear God himself speaking. And when he appears at times, he receives the worship of, peop of people, the people he appears to, something that other angels in the scriptures absolutely refused. Well, there is only one other person in the Bible who is both fully God, yet able to accommodate himself to walk in the company of sinners. And that's Jesus Christ. That makes many conclude that this person in the fire is in fact the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the one who has come. To tell these and assure these men of their deliverance and to communicate that he is Savior. Friends, we too need saving. Few people in this world, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, few people in this world realize that they need saving. But the Bible tells us that sinful people face a furnace, actually, that's infinitely worse than the seven times hotter furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. It's a place called hell. A place where God's judgment is poured out on all who do not conform to his standards of holiness and who do not worship as he has authoritatively decreed. Jesus is the one who spoke about this place more than anyone else. Even in Matthew 13, we read this, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth hell exists as much as heaven does it's a very real place that we need saved from and here is the amazing thing though jesus is the one who comes talks about it a lot and warns people about not going there doing something, putting the brakes on and doing an about turn so that they don't end up there. Here's the amazing thing to note. Jesus came to rescue people from it. He came to rescue people from that very furnace. Because Jesus, when he would go to a cross, died to pay the penalty that would ordinarily have sentenced us to hell. Now, I wonder if that's in your head when you're thinking about your sin. As you're here tonight, and maybe you're not a Christian, we often have quite a, a loose view of our sin. I'm guilty of that even. I certainly was before I became a Christian. And yet we can't be when we see how severe the judgment. 
and how I fear that, that some sit here week after week hearing message after message of, and hearing the warnings of repent and believe, repent and believe, turn away, put the brakes on, stop doing that, turn around, follow Christ, bank your everything on him, and yet we don't. Some of us are like Nebuchadnezzar. Remember at the end of the service, at the end of the text last week, he was bowing down. Your God is the God of gods, Daniel. What do we see him do in verse 1 of chapter 3? Nebuchadnezzar set up an image of gold. There was no stone next to it. It wasn't an image that was projected to him or interpreted for him in this vision. No, 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 no. It was a defiance. Friend, if you're here tonight, my encouragement for you is to recognize that there is of the reality of a place called hell and the need to be saved from it. That's why you need to know tonight the very central message that this scripture in Daniel 3 teaches. God is our savior and we can trust him to deliver us from the furnace. Because God makes a person's response to Jesus the single determining factor in whether or not a person is saved from hell, you must come to faith in Jesus Christ to be rescued from it. Have you? Please don't go home tonight without doing that. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be rescued. You will be saved. What about for us as Christians? Those who are banking everything on Jesus Christ. What about us? Well, we have this great comfort that God is with us in our trials. We're not thrown into blazing furnaces, not in this country anyway, but still in the operating room, in the doctor's surgery, at the graveside, in the classroom, in the pub with friends, when abused by another, when rejected by those we love. Friends, God is with us still. We may not see him with our eyes, but he is with us. He is never not with us. Surely, Jesus says, I am with you to the very end of the age. Therefore, we must resolve with God's help to stand firm, to be strong in the Lord and let nothing move us. And to do so confidently, knowing that in the end, our trust will be vindicated. Our trust might look foolish to many in our world, but it will be proved right in the end, even as it was in Daniel 3. When we see that it all started out with a call to worship an image created by Nebuchadnezzar, but it ends with Nebuchadnezzar praising the Creator. When it all begins with a decree in verses 4 and 10, everybody fall down and worship the image. It ends with a new decree in verse 29. Anyone who says anything against the God of these guys will be cut to pieces. Nebuchadnezzar's not quite getting it yet, is he? And even earlier he said, What God will be able to rescue you from my hands? At the end he declares, No other God can save in this way. He was right. I don't think he said it with the conviction of a believer. But you might tonight. No other God can save in this way. Therefore, brothers and sisters, everyone, trust him. He is a God who saves. Let's bow our heads. Let's take some time to respond to him in prayer.
And before we sing a couple of songs and take up our offering, just pray to get, uh, take some time to pray. If you want some help, there's two or three things on screen for you. But pray in response to the God who saves us, who is with us in our trials.